Hello, and welcome to The Mastering Show. My name is Ian Shepard. I'm a mastering engineer, and I run the Production Advice website, where I help you get the best results recording, mixing, and mastering your music. And just a quick warning that this episode contains some colourful language, shall we say. So if you don't like swearing, maybe give this one a miss. And with me, as always this week, is my co-host, John Tidy. Hey, John. How are you doing? Hey, I'm really good. Our guest this week is Eric Sarafin, aka Mixer Man, a gold and platinum winning mixer and producer. Worked with acts like Ben Harper, The Far Side, Amy Grant, and Foreigner, just to name a handful. But he's also an author of several excellent books about audio mixing recording. He's just released Zen and the Art of Mixing as an audiobook, which I'm super happy about because I read it years ago and would love to read it again. But these days I do all my reading by listening. Eric, welcome to The Mastering Show. Hey, Ian, how's it going? John, how you doing? I'm good. I'm glad to be on your show, Ian. Uh, you know, I read you all the time on Facebook, the things you got to say. Every now and then we get into a little little debate. It's always good, fun. Yeah, absolutely. We, we, we can talk about one of those debates in a little bit. Um, actually, you probably don't remember this, but we first... Um, in air quotes, met online way back. Maybe it was the early 2000s on Glenn Meadows mastering web board. Do you remember that? It was pre-gear space, pre-everything, I think. I remember those were the days, weren't they? <laughs> I seem to remember there was a, a thing where you came in and started speaking some truth and you were completely anonymous at that point. Everybody only knew you as Mixer Man and lots of people or a few people got upset about the things that you were saying and then some other people sprang to your defense and it was all highly entertaining. I totally remember uh, that incident on, on Glenn Meadows' uh, forum and I think I even revealed who I was on it too at that time. So I must have been well done with the Daily Adventures at the time. Whatever it was, like... I got really fucking pissed because really it was I was really getting attacked personally, and uh, you know, a, a lot of time, most of the time when I'm getting, I was getting attacked re relentlessly anyway, and I found most of it funny. But sometimes when I was in a serious situation, like I didn't really appreciate it so much. So I do remember all that. Well, I mean, I've got to say, it's one of the things that I like about you. Uh, I mean, I think anybody who has kind of heard you speak or spoken to you can tell that you're actually a fairly laid back person, but you do like to say things to um, provoke conversation, let's say. And I, I think that's great because they do provoke interesting conversations. And I often find you come at stuff from an unusual angle or maybe an angle that I haven't looked at things before. And in fact, we could, we could talk about one of those um, because one of your books that I didn't mention is The Musician's Survival Guide to a Killer Record. Mm. I had to look this up. I couldn't believe it. It was already 2018. That Isn't that crazy? That came. I know. That's mad. But um, you said some uh, kind of thought-provoking things, let's say, about mastering in that book. And I was kind of actually curious to circle back around because we had, like you say, a, a kind of a friendly debate about it on, online and elsewhere. Sure. Um, I mean, so for people who maybe haven't, didn't pick up on that or um, aren't sure what I, I'm talking about here... I mean, basically, you were saying, well, I, I can quote you, until you're making money from your music, I wouldn't bother mastering your records. Just run your production through an online mastering service <gasps> and be done with it. Or get yourself a good brick wall limiter and bring it to level yourself. And I mean, maybe we should just pause and you just explain a bit of the thinking behind that first. Well, it's probably a little dangerous for people to use a brick wall limiter on their own, uh, especially if they're a musician and they don't haven't had much time with it. But because people tend to usually hit it too hard, I find. But, you know, uh, when I wrote that at the time, Ozone was out. and um, The mastering assistant? Is that the one you mean? Yeah, the mastering assistant. And, uh, like, for a while I was finding that quite useful, actually, because it, it would tell me where I was at. And I realized pretty quickly that uh, the mastering assistant heard things way brighter than I did in general. Anyway, the thing is, you know, I read all these mixing and mastering groups online and I read what musicians say and how people struggle and, and how they think mastering is the be all end all. You've got to get it mastered. If you don't get it mastered, you're not doing it right. And it's like, it gets pretty expensive 
Because a lot of guys, a lot of these guys are actually very prolific who are, who are learning. They're doing a song a day. Some are doing a couple songs a week, whatever. It's still enough where it's going to add up, even if you have someone rather inexpensive. And it's like, you know, when you're in the learning phases of this, of all this, there's no reason to spend money on that. Because if you put it up online and it starts getting a reaction, or if somebody starts sniffing around, a label starts sniffing around, like you're not going to remaster it anyway? Like, what does it matter? You just need it good enough and loud enough so that people online can listen to it. It doesn't need to be like the greatest mastering job. It's probably not going to be the greatest mixing job in the first place. So, like, but I find that a great song transcends all of that anyway. You know, we just want to make it the best it can be, and we want to make it better when there's money involved because there's money involved. So why wouldn't you want to make it the best it can be? But when there's no money involved, what does it matter? You just need to get it so it's good enough where you can see if it, it basically focus group it and see if it's going to get a reaction. And so that's that's the reason for my advice. It's not that I, I don't think people should get their records mastered. I think if you're going to do it for real, if you're going to send it in to, some, to, to, to sync or something like that, then yeah, you probably should get it mastered because it could make a difference. But if it's just going on SoundCloud to see what the hell happens with it, or if it's just going to sit as you like kind of build up a library, then there's really no point to that. Yeah, and I, I, I think I agree with a lot of that, which is is kind of where we ended up um, back at the time. The, the bit that I struggle with a little bit in there is the idea that maybe it should go to an automated mastering service instead mainly because I feel like, I mean, if somebody already has a decent mix in good shape, then the AI services are unlikely to cause a huge problem. So I don't have a, a big problem with that. Right. I think where I struggle a little bit is that if the mix is not in great shape to begin with, then the AI mastering services are unlikely to really do anything to, to improve it that much. You know, they will probably make it sound different, but I, in my experience, they can often do stuff that's really weird. Um, or just basically not helpful. And if the goal is just to be a little bit louder, then I think you're right, obviously, that people need to be careful with brick wall limiters. But if you don't push it too hard, which is something we can talk about in a minute, then um, it's unlikely to do a huge amount of damage either. So, yeah, I, I, I was just curious to see whether you... I mean, have you used any of the AI mastering services? Do you find any of them that you think kind of do a decent job? I mean, I'm guessing your mixes are mainly in pretty good shape already, so I'm sure they are. I've heard a mix of mine go through Lander. Yeah, it's not the greatest. I, I, I know it's not the greatest. And and also, you know, that was that advice was given in 2018. I probably would tend to agree with you more at this point and say, yeah, you should just get a brick wall limiter. And I'm probably actually going to do a revision of that book and I probably will revise that. You know, I don't advise any gear in that book, but there are some limiters now that are just really amazing. <laughs> like, hmm. like I think the Ozone one is really good, but I really like that FabFilter L2. Like, I fucking love that thing. And before that, I was using that the G2 Invisible Limiter, which I thought was really good, but now, now, now I don't like it as much because I, I'm so, I, so in love with that L2. That's the FabFilter one, not the Waves one. Yeah, and, uh, it's important, and um, we have the metering too. Like we have, you have. There's your thing, your loudness penalty thing, you know. So on my on my two bus, I've got an EQ which usually is not engaged. I have the FabFilter L2 which isn't engaged until the end of the mix. I have the peak meter which I'll check while I'm mixing with before the before I ever engage the limiter if I need to. And then I have a loudness meter. And so what I'll do is at the end of the mix, I'm going to pop the L2 in and I'm going to bring it to the loudness that I think it needs to be pretty much by ear. Then I'm going to open the loudness meter and I'm going to check to see where I'm at at the, at the loudest part of the song. I'm not really checking integrated. I'm just checking short term. Mm -hmm. You know, pretty much make sure I'm not over minus 10 I don't really like going over minus 10. I don't tend to anyway. I probably don't need the loudness meter because I don't end up that there anyway. But I do like to just check to see where I'm at. And then I uh, take off the loudness meter and then I adjust my levels 
because when you're getting that loud with with the limiters, it's going to change your balances. And so if I'm going to have put a limiter in, then I'm going to really want it integrated into the mix. That's pretty much the procedure. So I think that people can use a limiter, but they're going to have to spend some money on it because there's a lot of lousy limiters, and I don't think you should use a bad limiter. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree with that. I mean, we've talked about this before. You're finding, I think I'm right in saying, you're finding that you're under a ton of pressure from the clients that you're working for, or you know that they are going to have them mastered insanely loud. And because when mastering processing like limiting is used really hard like that, it is going to change the tonality of the mix and the balance of the mix. So for that reason, you're finding yourself forced into a position where you have to actually make stuff louder than you might otherwise do. Do I have that right? That's that's pretty close. I would say it's not so much that the, the problem is if the client sends it out to a mastering engineer and if they want to send it to someone that I don't really know, and to be honest, even if they want to send it to someone I do know, they're going to make it too loud because the mastering engineers feel under that pressure. And like, you know, I sent one thing to a buddy recently and, and, and he sends it back and I'm like, I, I never thought you would make it this loud. I didn't even talk to him about it in advance because I didn't think there was any way he'd make it that loud. And once he does, and once it goes to the client and me, then we're kind of stuck because there's no, there's not usually any going back, you know? So like, I realized at that point, you know, I really, really need to take complete control over this, over my mix and protect my balances, basically. And if I put a limiter on and I limit it hard, uh, relatively hard, hard for what I, I think it should be even, um, although I kind of like it, you know, I, I can't say that I'm not liking the results. I'm not making it so loud where I go, well, this sucks, but, you know, I'll do it anyway. It's not that. It's just that I might prefer it at minus 12, but I'm not, it's not killing me at minus 10, right? Mm -hmm. uh, as long as I can get the low end that I want out of it and everything, then I'm okay with it. People are listening to records really loud, so it's, you know, it's all, it's, it's all within, the, in, within the scope. So the best way for me to protect the mix is to just finish the fucking thing. And uh, then if somebody ends up sending it to a mastering engineer, then the mastering engineer is pretty much going to end up running it flat. Maybe to add some EQ. But they're not. They're probably not going to add a limiter to it because limiters don't really don't really layer very well. You know that's not a big issue anyway because they never ever want to go to a mastering engineer after I'm done because the thing's pretty much mastered. And I've gotten better at at, at that process too because it used to be like this dark art and now there's a lot of information online and so now I get to see what you guys do. Once I understand what you guys have been doing all these years, then I can do it too. So, and also, you know, my monitoring is just beyond now that I've put these Dutch and Dutch HCs in my room. And like, I swear to you, man, my mixes translate. I can listen to my mix that I've been mixing in my room, go upstairs and listen to it on my fucking phone. And the balances sound the same. So like uh, that consultation that I used to need where I was trying to get into the ballpark, I don't, I don't need as much anymore. Plus, I don't mix a song in a day. I don't sit down and mix a song in six hours. I mix it over a course of three days. I'm mixing this song, then that song, then this song, then that song. I'm all over the place. And then I do a finish day, you know? Mm -hmm. So all those reasons kind of just over time have caused me to say, well, if Emmys are going to ma master it by default that loud anyway, and even my buddies are going to do it, then I should just do it. And so, and I used to even just, if someone wanted to master it, I would give them the unlimited one. I'm not giving the unlimited one anymore. I just got to give the limited one. Here, have at it. Yeah, it's interesting. And it's it's kind of frustrating for me because- Sure. Because you're saying that. So so you you feel under pressure because of what happens at mastering. And then I have some of the best mastering engineers in the business saying, that they're feeling under pressure because they're being sent mixes that are super loud, quite possibly for the reasons that you're saying, but I think also more commonly just because artists and clients insist on hearing something that is as loud as everything else that's already out there. 
So, you know, I think the process that you're describing there, when it's somebody like you with some really good monitoring, which I want to come back to in a minute, um, I don't have such a big problem with that, right? Because yeah. you're not talking, you know, minus 10 is not insanely loud. It's at the top end of what I think is, can, you can work well. Yeah. Um, you've got good monitoring and you are, you're building it into the mix from the outset. And so all the decisions are made with that in place. Yeah. That's a system that's going to work well. Whereas I think what is much more common is the mix is one thing and then somebody hears it and says, well, yeah, but we need it to be louder. Or just the mixer knows that people are expected it's going to be louder and it gets slammed through maybe a good limiter, maybe not a good limiter. And then, like you say, everybody gets used to that super loud version and suddenly you can't back off from it. Right. I just keep hoping that everybody's just going to relax. <laughs> And, and just kind of take their foot off the gas. Dude, because it's crazy. I don't understand it. Why do these fucking streaming sites not just commit once and for all? You know, it's no good if you if you level match on one app and don't level match on your other apps. Or you level match on the computer, but not on the phone, but not on the Apple TV. It's ridiculous. Fucking level match the shit so that we can have a fair evaluation of what people are hearing. Mm. Because uh, it's just made the loudness wars even worse than they've ever been. I mean, I'm seeing guys right online. Well, you should always, I always target for minus six because the DJs won't even play it unless it's minus six. And I'm thinking, do these DJs not like low end? Because that's what you're losing. I mean, I don't even understand it. You lose punch, you lose low end. How is that good for the dance floor? We talked to Luca Pretolesi on, on a recent episode and actually i'm going to do another episode because i think dj's come in for a ton of flack but some of the stuff i've been learning about the dj software makes me understand where they're coming from and what's that well i'm not going to give any spoilers you'll have to listen to <laughs> it'll be it'll be in the next episode or two because okay, okay, i've got a, a whole show planned on that but it yeah it, no i mean you're right it's a, it's a mess uh, i mean the good news is you know we've now got spotify youtube tidal all at minus 14. Apple are finally enabling it by default and are using LUFs. And okay, they've gone for minus 16, but that does not such a of a big deal. But I agree with you. It's very frustrating when some of them, like the app will normalize, but the website won't or whatever it is. I mean, and I think that's one of the things that I appreciate is that you've been saying this stuff recently, because, you know, my hope is that more people who have an audience and are influential, I guess, will start to say this kind of thing. I think people, you know, need to hear it. There are so many people out there saying, oh, you need to make it minus six or whatever, um, you know, and it doesn't matter if it gets turned down because it's still going to sound as good. I mean, you know, that's not true. <laughs> but it doesn't even sound good at minus six. I've never heard a record that actually sounds great at minus six. They sound, you remove all depth of field from the record, even at minus seven. I mean, anything below, as soon as you start getting above minus 10, you're re completely removing the depth of field. And you're making it so that you pretty much exhaust people who are listening to it. And so they turn it down. They don't know that they're getting exhausted. But they end up turning it way down because it cuts through everything. It cuts through all the external noise, which is the advantage of it, which is what the purpose of loudness is to cut through noisy environments. But what, what it's become is uh, a, a thing that you do to because you're insecure or because you need to appease someone's insecurities, whether it's an A&R person, the manager, somebody who's insecure about the loudness saying, oh, man, you got to make it as loud as possible. I don't worry about the streaming sites having different level matching or not level matching because of my stuff, because I don't give a shit. I mean, I'll master, I've mastered a record a couple of years ago at minus 14, and I'm happy with it. But, you know, it called for that kind of dynamic. So, mm. you know, but people get so insecure about it and they think, oh, someone's going to not, someone's going to skip it. Why are they going to skip it? What they're going to do is they're going to go, why can't I hear this fucking thing? And they're going to turn it up. <laughs> You know? uh, oh, that's cool. I like that record. You know what I'm saying? So I don't know. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree. And I mean, something that I, I always notice is that, yeah, when there's something that's super loud, I just want to turn it down. When there's something that's more balanced, I do. I want to crank it up um, and I'm happy with it loud. You know, I actually listen to it louder than the stuff that started off louder before and I had to turn it down in the first place. Anyway, like I say, it's it's great to hear you talking about this stuff to help get the word out. So, you know, 
I appreciate that. I'm interested in what you were saying about the monitors, because you said you got Dutch and Dutch 8Cs, and I've heard a lot about them. They're supposed to be way better in less ideal rooms and acoustics, because if I understand it, they have they have these bass drivers at the back so that you can stand them closer to the wall, um, and it's supposed to deal way better with the room. Sounds like you would agree with that. Sounds like you're really pleased oh, with Oh, yeah. That. Like, what they do is you... You measure them off the wall. You set the app up so that you tell how far off at the wall it is, so it knows how much bass, how much low end to emit from the back woofers. Uh, it hits the wall. It goes to the front, and then they do some calculations. These are cardioid design, and they do some calculations. And then the low end, they flip the phase on the front of the speakers, and then you don't have this weird low end thing that usually happens right at right in front of the, the monitors. And then you use the REW software that people use for all sorts of things, but there's a Dutch and Dutch uh, parameter in there. You measure, it shows you where your issues are, and then it sends those calculations to your app and puts the filters in for those to flatten them. And then you measure again and it looks flat and you're beautiful and you're good to go. They're a fucking miracle. I, I, I'm just going to tell you something. Like... It's not as big deal to make this room good because I already have a ton of bass trapping in the back. I've already got acoustic stuff going. I'm already in the right spot. But my buddy, Michael, who introduced me to these, and I even let him in my room for a little bit, He, when it was time for him to go, he went to his house and he had this little room. And he's like, I, you know, I never was going to work in this little room, but I'm going to see if it works. And it's the kind of room where... If someone showed it to you online, you and I and many other people would say, oh, no, 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 dude, there's no way. It's too small. It's not going to work. And he set him up and he did his thing. He doesn't have a ton of acoustical treatment in there. And he calls me up. He's like, hey, can I bring these mixes over so I can just check them in your room and see where they're at? Because, you know, I think they're good, but... I'm like, yeah, yeah, come on over. And he knows my room inside and out now because he's been mastering records here. And uh, he sits down and you know he plays it for me. And I'm like, dude, these are on. These are completely on point. Like, there's no, you have no issues. He had no business mixing in this room, and these things have fixed that room. I don't know, man. Like, the the distributor came over here. I was telling him I'm moving to a new room, and he's like, yeah, don't worry about so much of the, the acoustic stuff. Just set them up and see how they work. And he's kind of right. I mean, I am going to set my bass trapping up, and I'm going to set up the room and make it acoustically good. But it's unbelievable what they can do. And so they're outrageously expensive. And if you asked me a year and a half ago, I would have said, there's no fucking way. I would never spend that kind of money. I mixed my biggest records on $300 monitors. Are you kidding me? I'm going to spend $15,000 on a pair of monitors? There's no fucking way. And, but now I'm like, well, when you think about it, if I don't ever have to do a build out, if I don't have to buy any more acoustic shit when I go to the next thing, next my next room, if I don't have to do a build-out in a house where I devalue the house, basically, because I've built a room, and then I'm kind of stuck there because I don't want to move because I know if I move, then I have to do another build-out in the next place I move, right? Then it becomes downright inexpensive. Yeah, I'm looking at them right now on Vintage King. You can get a deal, 13000 for the pair. So it uh, really makes you think. That's, that's super interesting, though. But that's where we're at. And the thing is, when you think about it, like in 2001, what were people spending their money on? Engineers would buy $30,000 Pro Tools rigs. You, I, I, my, my DAW cost me $200 in 2013. I haven't spent another penny on it. I could use all stock Logic plugins if I wanted and mix a record, no problems. You know, nowadays, the plugins are so good on some of these third-party things, uh, I, I wouldn't be super happy about it. But... Uh, uh, because the distortion algorithms this, these companies are putting out now are just beautiful and and analog sounding. And there's plugins now where you pop them in and they do like, for the first time you put a plugin in and it automatically sounds better. You don't have to sit there for 10 minutes tweaking the thing to make it do what you want it to do. It's more, much more analog in that way. You used to pop the LA-2A in. It's only got two knobs. It sounds better. All right, let's move on to the next thing. And we're finally getting there with the plugins. Uh, you've actually been mixing from home um, for years now, but before, you know, before the pandemic and everyone had to. 
is there any like tips you want to share with that process of getting your room set up or uh, you even mentioned like the uh, setting the the loudness by ear so any tips around that i used to go room to room to room to room and i found that uh by the third time i went to a room i i had it memorized like my brain would automatically compensate for that room and i wouldn't have to think i could just immediately boom start mixing in it whereas if i went into a new room that first day i got to be really careful and really make sure that that first mix is in the place where it belongs and i know what i'm hearing and i know what's how it's translating and then i can as i go further and further along i can get more and more aggressive with how how i'm mixing and how fast i'm mixing and and how fast i'm making my decisions so um but you know i'll tell you man it's been a long painful journey mixing at the house because like it's not until i got this system that really i could i knew exactly what was happening in my room there was always squirreliness always mixes took longer i had to take longer breaks and get away from it longer because i'd come back and i'd be like oh fuck this isn't sounding the way i thought it was sounding because i got used to way it was sounding and shit like that and uh, it has not been fun in that regard, but it was the position that we were in. I mean, what, people didn't want to pay me and pay for a room too. I didn't want to like really have a commercial space. I really didn't want that. And, you know, I didn't even know how much longer I'd mix. And now I'm like, fuck, I love mixing again so much. That's all I want to do right now. I mean, this is something that I've noticed as well. When I first started training as a mastering engineer back in the early 90s, the the monitoring that was available in the mastering studios was in a completely different league to everything else that was out there. Mm -hmm. Over the years since then, I've watched the standard of affordable monitoring. You know, I mean, Dutch and Dutch 8Cs are not affordable for most people, but, you know, there's Focals, there's Dynaudio, I've heard great things about Neumann monitors. You know, there's a ton of different options these days that are much, much higher quality. Um, and you're right, there's information about acoustic treatment out there that, that wasn't before. So it's interesting for me because, you know, hearing the things that you're saying, Eric, it, the, the reason I called this show uh, Mixer Man versus Mastering, because it's almost like you're making a fairly convincing argument that mastering is not necessary because we're saying the plugins sound amazing, so you don't need all the analog gear if you don't want to spend the money on it. The monitoring is amazing. You can build acoustic treatment. You can make rooms work in your house, so you don't need professional studio. I mean, the hardware is improving all the time just in terms of the computers, you know, the processing. I mean, I run all my digital stuff on a, on a Mac that's 10 years old at this point, I think older. And so, you know, any modern machine is going to blow that out of the water. There's fantastic limiters available. I mean, I agree with you that if you're not making money from the music, then paying for mastering probably doesn't make sense. Of course, I still think you should um, maybe throw a bit of money set way, the way of somebody like me so that I can tell you how to do it the best possible way. <laughs> but um, Or you, of course, and buy your books and get educated that way. And, and you're right, mastering is not a black art. There's a good degree of science in there. There's a good degree of practicality. Um, you've got to be musical. But if you're making music already, then hopefully you've got some of those skills there. So, you know, I'm curious at this point, if you, so, I mean, you said earlier, you know, if there's money to be made, fair enough, let's make it the best that we can be. Is mastering still a part of that recipe for you? Or are you at the point now where you're thinking, actually, I could take it or leave it? For me, I don't want to, I don't even want a mastering engineer to do anything on anything I do anymore. But I, I will, I will readily admit that I'm, I'm in a different position than others may be. So, like, I could understand why some mixing engineers would want to still use a mastering engineer. But what I'm saying, I guess, is that the writing is on the wall that what I'm doing, I happen to know, is what other guys in L.A. are doing because I just had Dave Collins just told me about one famous mix engineer who sends everything in at minus seven. And I'm like, well, that's interesting because that's where I'm at. I mean, I'm not at minus seven, but I, I suppose if I was delivering to major labels, I would be because I know that that's what they're going to want. And if I wanted to play that game, then that that's the dance you got to do. I think that the better these tools become and the more 
the more difficult it is for you to fuck it up yourself, like you have to really, really work hard, then it kind of puts mastering engineers into question as to how long that 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 profession is going to be, that that discipline is going to be needed. There will always be some need. I'm not saying there won't, but let's just let's face it. There's more mastering engineers than any other engineer. So how does that work? You know what I mean? So like because it's the easiest thing to do, you need the, the least amount of equipment, I suppose, is what happens. But at some point, the cream of the crop is all that's going to be left because people are going to be able to do it just as well on their own. You know, back when in vinyl, you had to know things, right? You had to know how to get it so that the needle wouldn't jump out. You had to set the low end. And, and even on when CDs came in, you had to, to – to, there was technical stuff that you had to do so that when went to the CD plant, it, it was right and they, they would re- reproduce right. But now, what do you have to do? You could put it on the streaming site. You don't have to do anything. You just have to make sure it's not over zero. And that's it. So where is the the technical expertise? So all that leaves is the art of it at this point. And so the true artists, I guess, are going to remain. But uh, I don't know that everybody else is. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 super in- interesting because to push back a bit on that because I think there's a lot of truth in a lot of things that you're saying. But my experience is still, even when I get stuff from the best recording artists and mixers that I get to work with. And even when I get to hear some stuff that's been done by people who are way out of my league, um, just in terms of, you know, kind of budget and profile and all that kind of stuff, I still find that there is a real contribution that I can make. You know, it's, people ask me this, you know, it's because mastering for me is a lot of it is about minimalism. You know, I'm happiest when I have to do less rather than more. Um, so if something comes in in great shape and I'm listening to it and thinking, well, I don't, I mean, there are things I could do with this, but I don't have to, I will always say that to the client. Um, and quite often when I do, their reply is, well, you know, just show us what you, show us what you think, show us what you would do anyway. Let's, let's see what, see how it sounds. And I can't think of, I I literally can't think of any time that anybody has we've gone through that process and they've gone, nah, you know what? It's all right. (laughs) I'll keep my money. It's, there's always stuff. And it's fascinating for me because, you know, you kind of wonder, well, where does that, because it's not like I'm some kind of genius. I mean, there's, you know, I, I definitely have clients whose ears are every bit as good as mine and whose artistic sensibilities and, you know, who have gear that is, is good enough to do a fantastic job um and i guess that's where it comes into this thing of the of the different perspective you know of somebody who's we always say objective but i mean i guess it's just different you know it's like it's really hard to have that kind of clarity about what you're doing when you're working on stuff and locked into it so for someone else for the mastering engineer to come along and take an overview and say okay if it's these 10 songs together then I would suggest these things. I still think there is a lot of value in that part of the process. Um, But even that is something that people can teach themselves to do as well. I don't disagree with any of that, really. I mean, you know, I appreciate the input from a mastering engineer, and I appreciate when it's run through analog gear. I think it improves it almost every time. So... I'm admitting to you that uh, I probably can't deliver it mastered as great as if I have a partner in the mastering engineer. But the problem is that I have to weigh the positives against the negatives. And one of the negatives is I got to kind of guess at where my levels are going to end up at. And there's some things I can guess fairly accurately, but not everything. And, you know, I find that I need to spend less and less time as I get to know a limiter. But if you use a different limiter, then it can alter my balances in a way that I don't expect or don't want. Um, But then if you run it through analog gear, that may kind of counterbalance the, the balance differences. And so I understand this. And when the economics were such where I was getting $2,500 a mix, that's a whole different thing. 
But when we start to get below that, right, and like I'm not getting anywhere near that anymore, so then the the economics change and uh, I have to like weigh uh, the value added versus time and ease and what I'm delivering the client. And the other thing is that I'm putting the limiter on before I ever send the mix out. My first print, well, it's not a print, my first bounce has the limiter on it. And that's completely changed the notes process. So the notes process isn't weird anymore because they're not confused and feeling like they don't know where they're at because it's not loud enough. And, you know, I've been slapping a limiter on at the end for years, but that's not the same as what I'm doing now where it's fully integrated. And so in general, if I hit the mix, there's no notes. The calculus has just changed because of all of those factors. And so, yeah, if I was to send a mix to you, I have no doubt that you would do things and I'd go, man, I love that. But... Uh, you know, at this point, because of all the negatives, I'm just not there anymore. I, I feel like mastering engineers have almost done it to themselves <laughs> because for years and years and years, oh, I don't like making records loud. Well, then why did you default to loud? Because if I don't default to loud, then they tell me to make it loud and I have to do it twice. Well, okay, so you don't like to make it loud, so you don't deliver how you think it should sound. You deliver how you think they think it should sound. I think that's really interesting because that's something that I I wonder. You know, I, well, I know that there are, you know, major names in the industry out there who have just been burned so many times. You know, they've, like you say, they, they've delivered something that was more dynamic that um, they were really happy with and was where they thought it should be and they got asked to make it louder and we've now kind of got to the opposite situation where they they just default to making it super loud to, I mean, there, there are people who say they've lost, you know, lost work just because the first version wasn't loud enough. Um, and that's, you know, it's kind of similar to the stuff that, that the DJs are up against, I think. You know, that's a really tough situation to be in. Um, I mean, I guess it's why I'm happy to do this show and that that people kind of like it and take the information on board because... My hope is that the more education we can get out there to people to understand how this stuff works, the more people will choose to, to you know, to not play that game. Because, I mean, you said you mastered a record at uh, minus 14. I mean, I've actually had, especially over the last year or two, interestingly enough, more and more people kind of reaching out to me and saying, that's exactly how I work as a mastering engineer as well. And I'm having huge success with it. You know, my clients are really happy the way things sound and understand that, you know, if, if minus 14 is the loudest it's ever going to get played online, then there's no need to go any louder than that. You can still, if you want to, if it's part of the sound or if, you know, if pushing the limiter hard or whatever works with the aesthetic and all the rest of it, but that gives them huge freedom. So, you know, that stuff makes me optimistic um, and hope that, you know, Ultimately, <laughs> mastering engineers don't end up being uh, a dying breed. Um, but it is really interesting to, you know, to kind of think about the stuff that you're, uh, you're saying there. Let me just say one other thing about that. Like you, you mentioned that people have like these new computers. Well, I, I have one of these Mac studios and I have a session where you know, I'll put that L2 limiter on, and now they the, all these limiters have the oversampling on them now. Oh my God, it makes such a difference. It says on the on the FabFilter L2, it says 16x, right? And then it says computer intensive, and then 32x, really computer uh, uh, um, uh, processor um, intensive. And I can run the mix all day long with 32x on, real time, no problems. I can put the Ozone's uh, RX um, spectral thing on my uh, on my narration on the Daily Adventures of Mixer Man. I'm, I'm sweetening that up. We'll talk about that in a second. But on my narration and remove all the noise, and I can put it on the, the D that says, you can't use this in real time, and I can use it in real time. <laughs> so, like, the computer 
Now, that the Mac computers are just off the hook in their power and what you can do. And you can run this shit that you couldn't run before. No problems. And it's just, it just makes a huge difference. I am starting to feel like maybe I owe myself an upgrade at this point. You know, I mean, my cheese grater is great, but it I, I do now have some, like if I throw some of the DMG stuff in there um, and, oh, that thing, I don't really like it, but Soothe that everybody talks about, that basically brings my processor to its knees so oh, really yeah you gotta well the, I'll, I'll tell you another thing that that you might want to try that's going to make you buy a new computer and that's this thing called um gofos by this company called sound theory have you heard of this thing i have heard of it i haven't tried it oh man it's pretty wild like it's apparently supposedly doing all these EQ things real time, these EQ calculations real time, and slight micro adjustments a thousand per second or something ridiculous like that. I put it on a mix. It has to go before the limiter. There's basically two adjustments. And like the guy who makes it was like, yeah, he uses between 20 and 40% out of 200%. And I couldn't get above 10%. On mine, and basically what it does is it adds clarity to your mix. And I already mix with clarity, so that's probably why I don't really like it above ten percent much. But man, it does some really interesting things. And I I I hit my buddy Ardvark to it, and like he started cursing me out because it, it, like his whole day was ruined just fucking with this thing on all the mixes he had done the days prior. And like it's a really, really interesting thing, and I, I'm actually hoping other people use it because I, I want to have some discussions about what people discover with this thing because it's like you know nobody knows, nobody's used it really. Yeah, it's interesting. So I'd be interested how everybody else finds it. Now you got me curious. Now I think I'm going to have to take a look. I mean, it's another good point. It's you know, I mean, all of this technology is is moving so fast. I mean, the other thing that's that's weird for me as an engineer is. Like somebody asked me the other day, oh, can you just pull the guitar back at that such and such a point in the song? And I started typing my reply saying, well, no, you really can't do that with the Stereo Master. You're going to have to go back to the mix to do that. And I knew they couldn't because they didn't have access to the mix files anymore. This was a an old project that was being re-released. Right. And then I kind of thought, except actually maybe if I use that thing in Ozone, the music rebalance, I probably could. Huh. Yep. So it's, it's like, you know, the, the, the technology is developing at this point to the stage where we can do stuff in the mastering stage that nobody was ever supposed to be able to do, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, which is another kind of interesting, you know, d decision. Well, I mean, there you go. There's, there's one of your favorite topics is that STEM mastering is not mastering. It's actually mixing. I don't know whether you want to say a bit about that quickly. Well, you know, I've, I've been on record of being against it, but, you know, now that I've been playing with the limiter more and I really understand what happens when you make it loud, I, I, I think that a lot of times guys want the, the stems because they just want to rebalance things to work with the limiter better. So I kind of understand that. But I do think that in most cases, it's just people that either want to mix that that can't get mixed work so they just want something that's close to it or something and then other people that are semi-predatory and they don't want people to learn how to mix on their own i'm sure all of that goes into it but whatever people are going to do all sorts of things these days you know so i think that the it's all wide open now because the technologies are changing so dramatically and becoming so automated and so useful to people that don't know what they're doing if all you can do is raise two sliders and it makes it better well, that's the perfect thing for the pro and the amateur alike, right? Yeah, and I guess that that kind of fits into, I mean, because one of the things I like about you and your books is that your whole uh, philosophy, I guess, is, you know, it's all about the music and music is about emotion. Um, so at the end of the day, none of this technical stuff really matters, providing you're conveying the right emotional intent. Yeah. Um, so the more the technology comes along and kind of gets out of the way so that, you know, people can just express themselves, I guess, you know, that's that's a positive thing. You never see anybody online complaining that they are having trouble writing a melody, you know? <laughs> so, like, I mean, maybe occasionally if someone is brand new, but it's never about the music. They never say, I'm having trouble making a great song or I'm having trouble coming up with a good arrangement, although most people probably aren't coming up with, 
you know, if people put their focus on arrangement, they wouldn't have to put nearly as much focus on the technical is the thing. Because if you do, if you're focusing on the arrangement, you are focusing on the frequency content of everything uh, and uh, how how things make you move forward in the mix and, and how things make you feel at any given moment. And those have much more of an impact than anything that you do technical. And, and, and when you start doing technical things, it's because you're doing damage control. Yeah, the more you can get the technical out of the way, the better, always. And the more companies make plugins that get the technical out of the way, the more people are going to be able to focus on the music. Of course, you know, they just had a, a bot just put out a song and they had a bot make a song by feeding it all this all the all these hits and and it's not a bad song. Unfortunately, pop music is so simple that even a computer is going to be able to make make that. Oh, that's a scary thought. <laughs> I want to um, circle back around. We started off by talking about the daily adventures of Mixerman, and I had uh, gone online to look for it because you did a dramatized, I don't really want to call it an audiobook because it was a full dramatization of uh, this, and I couldn't find it. Um, but you told me the answer, which I think is good news. It, um, you're working on it now, right? Yeah, well, I, I pulled it from Audible. I'm pulling all my books from Audible, actually, because Audible basically rips us off. If, if I don't put it on Audible exclusively, they half my royalty rate. If I put more than five minutes of any audiobook online, they half my royalty rate send, after they send me a nasty letter. And everybody else gives me a good royalty rate. I don't really rely on their subscription network where... People who are avid audiobook listeners will find my book because my books are so niche. Uh, they're, they're the kind of thing where if people know about it, they'll go find it and buy it. So for me, it's better if I put it on Apple and uh, on this company called Findaway Voices, which will put it on every single audiobook platform in the world that's not audible. So, hmm. you know, for years they were the only game in town. I didn't really have any options. Now I have options, so I'm pulling everything from Audible. I decided I was going to pull The Daily Adventures of Mixer Man anyway because we're coming up on the 20-year anniversary this year. This July 31st will be 20 years from to the day of when I started posting that story. And I decided, you know, I don't need to sell it as an audiobook anymore. It's a period piece now anyway. We're 20 years out. There's a lot of things that kind of need to be explained, so... I'm going to do it as a podcast. I haven't figured out what platform yet. I'm going to do some value-added content where me and Aardvark and, and another friend of mine talk about the way things were at the time, uh, some of the technical things that don't exist anymore, you know, with two-inch tape and, and all of that, the kind of frenzy that occurred around that as I was posting it. You know, that's the whole thing about that, the daily adventures of Mixer Man. And I mean, it was drama right from the start. It is an audio dramatization. That's a very good description of it. That's how I describe it. When I was in high school, I was in a play called Nick Danger, uh, which was done by Firesign Theater, a 60s troupe that basically did plays that were similar to the way those old radio shows were done, where you had the people all around the mics and they were doing all the characters and then they would they do the foley too like they'd have a thing next to the mic with uh, flour or, or cornstarch in it so it could sound like you're walking in snow and they'd have all the things to make all the different sound effects and stuff and then they'd have musical stabs they'd have a musician there and shit so basically i, I kind of modeled it after that and because the band is playing music i have them playing music and i added a bunch of music of of productions that I did over the years uh, that were uh, that people basically licensed to me um, to, for the audiobook. And so I'm, I'm actually going to add more music to it, too. I never really uh, liked the music for the band that we came up with at the time. And so uh, I'm, I'm going to redo some of that. And so I'm just going to clean it up a little bit. Um, you know, I recorded the whole thing in my garage, so you hear all this room noise and shit. I, I've completely eradicated the room noise with the RX software. 
shit's incredible. Like, if you listen to the audiobook for Musician Survival Guide, there's no room tone. None. I left the room tone in on Zen and the Art of Mixing because I didn't like it when I took it out. But on Musician Survival Guide, there's no room tone at all. The voice just comes out of absolute silence at all times. It's, <laughs> it's just incredible. So anyway, I'm hoping to have it all done so that I can re-release it starting on July 31st of this year. I'm still missing a lot from my plans as far as, you know, the rollout and all of that. Uh, I may just not even have a rollout. I may just put it up and see if people glom onto it again. We'll see. But uh, I figure it, I don't need to sell it anymore. I'll just put it out there for people to hear for free at this point. I mean, that's great to hear because I, I love that thing. I didn't notice when I was listening to it any, I don't know, problems with room tone and all the rest of it. It just sounded like character to me. Um, and I just, yeah, I just remember laughing hugely. I would recommend it to anybody listening to this show. I think there's plenty of people listening to this, I think, who will remember the times that you're talking about and won't need. I mean, I think that's an interesting idea to kind of, it, it almost sounds like a, like a director's commentary um, that you're talking about there with added value stuff. So, well, there's also, it's a little, you know, it's a little shock jockey. And for the time, that stuff worked. And for now, some of it doesn't work so well. Well, I hope you figure out a solution that remains funny. There's so much in there to enjoy. And I would also recommend, I mean, I'm sure most people listening to this have already got your books or read your books. Yeah, if you're a fan of audiobooks like me, then definitely get Zen and the Art of Mixing. Take a listen to that. I'm going to be enjoying listening to that again. Eric, thank you so much for joining us, being so generous with your time. Maybe you just give people a few ideas where they can find you if they want to find out more about what you're doing. Keep an eye out for that podcast when it shows up and, and see what you do next. You can find me on my website, Mixerman.net. You're more likely to see updates on my Mixerman page on Facebook. And then I have a Mixerman group, which is attached to that Mixerman page. And the Mixerman group is not like a lot of the other groups. I try to make sure that people are getting good information. And as a result, I've got a lot of really, you know, great professionals that hang out there. Bob St. John hangs out there, William Whitman. And then a lot of my friends from the old forum are around there that know what they're talking about. Excellent. Cool. Well, thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. And I really appreciate uh, talking to you and, and interacting with you online. I, I really do. I think you're fighting the good fight. You know, like I said earlier, I don't really necessarily disagree with you in a lot of instances. I, I completely understand your perspective and appreciate it and think that it's important. It's an important perspective uh, because you're coming from a mastering perspective and I'm coming from a mixing perspective. And and we all got to kind of figure this shit out. And so thank you for, for everything you do and your, your meter too, your, uh, your loudness uh, penalty meter. I do use it still. No, thank you. I'm, I'm glad it's helpful. And yeah, thank you for continuing to say interesting, thoughtful, um, provoking things to keep life interesting. <laughs> all right. Thanks to Kaylee Law for letting us use his music. And thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, head over to themasteringshow.com forward slash review and leave us, hopefully, a five-star rating so that other people can find us and maybe get something from the show. As always, thanks for listening. 